Welcome to Frontline Church, South Oklahoma City's podcast page, where each week we will upload a new sermon uh, from our current sermon series that we're in. If you have uh, any questions, concerns, um, or have a prayer request or need, you can email us at hello at frontlinechurch.com or visit our website, south.frontlinechurch.com. Thanks. Scripture for today's sermon comes from 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 34. The word of God speaks to us. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says, all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of their dead, of, of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humbly speaking, I fought with beasts in Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. This is God's word to us. Thanks be to God. All right, you guys, go ahead and grab a seat. Uh, really easy passage today uh, you all are looking forward to. Um, all right, if I haven't had a chance to meet you, my name is Aaron Addison. I get to serve as one of the pastors here at Frontline South. In uh, a little over 10 years ago, I remember driving to work one day and seeing one of these billboards alongside the highway. Do you guys remember this? The Save the Date, Return of Christ, May 21st, 2011. And then there's one more I really remember. Uh, oh yeah, this one about the wise men. The wise men knew. Uh, he is coming again. Uh, so little did I know that these billboards not only popped up all over our city, but it actually showed up over the whole world. Places all over the world, these billboards popped up. And these billboards were based on the predictions of a Christian radio host named Harold Camping, who uh, kind of launched this information campaign that predicted and absolutely guaranteed that the judgment day would take place on May 21st, 2011. 
And his followers devoted their lives to getting the word out that the judgment day was coming. So many people sold their homes, they quit their jobs, they drained their savings accounts. Uh, So one woman told the New York Times that she had actually quit her job about two years before the Judgment Day date to sound the trumpet and to commit resources to the campaign. Uh, One married couple, they ended up draining their entire savings account because to them, they didn't see the need to hold on to a single dollar past that date. And one man spent upwards of $140,000 of his retirement on advertisements for this campaign. So in particular, because of how people responded to this, uh, it actually caused quite a stir. And it got to the point where the NYPD had to put out a statement. So they said, we don't plan any additional coverage for the end of the world. Indeed, if it happens, fewer officers will be required for streets that presumably will be empty. Uh, (laughs) They actually had to say that. So May 21st came and May 21st went and nothing happened. No angels, no trumpets, no rapture, no earthquake, no tsunamis, no cataclysmic events. Nothing happened. It was just a normal day. And uh, at first, Harold's camping kind of said, well, maybe something spiritual happened and the real end of the world is going to happen in October, until a few weeks later, he issued an apology for his, quote, incorrect and sinful predictions. And regardless of his intentions, uh, the consequences for his followers were devastating. For many of them, their whole world came crashing down, uh, and in many cases, their faith kind of fell apart in front of them. And here's why I bring any of that up, is that in certain segments of the church in America in particular, there is this obsession with what will happen in the end when Jesus returns. And the big word for this that I'm going to use over and over again, and I'm sorry, I wanted to try to find a smaller word and just couldn't, is eschatology. You'll hear me say that. And that means this idea of what we believe about the end, what we believe about when Jesus comes back and what he's going to do in the world. And there's some people that have this obsession with eschatology where they have their weird charts and they tell scary stories about being left behind. And maybe they have calculations and these interpretations. And it's kind of like that meme with the guy with the crazy hair who has stuff everywhere. And it's a bit like that, the way they're explaining stuff to you. Or you go through the Bible prophecy section of Mardell's and you see books about blood moons and Russia and ancient Bible codes. Uh, In fact, one book coming up soon by a guy who specializes in writing about end time stuff. Here's the blurb on the book, which I just found hilarious. He says, uh, this book will take you on a prophetic journey from a Caribbean island to Washington, D.C., to the ancient valley of Hinnom, to the Supreme Court, to a desert mountain, to an ancient Middle Eastern temple, to the gates of America, to uncover an ancient puzzle of stunning mysteries that lie behind the events of recent times that have altered our lives. Right? It's gotten a little out of hand, guys. Uh, This is a little much, right? It's like, what is going on? And so some of you grew up in a tradition like this that kind of demanded uh, unwavering belief around really minor details about Jesus' return. And in some of those traditions, uh, 
kind of aligning with end times belief was seen as a litmus test for uh, biblical faithfulness. In other words, if you kind of even doubted or questioned some of these ideas about uh, the details around Jesus' return, that was akin to kind of saying the Bible isn't God's word. Uh, I mean, it was a big deal. And as a reaction to that, many Christians today, just in my experience and talking to people, many Christians today tend to avoid eschatology altogether, tend to avoid kind of uh, really talking about, thinking about what it's going to be like when Jesus returns. Most of us at best are kind of like, I don't know, and I, I don't really care to know. Um, in, in many ways, we kind of see eschatology as confusing and obscure, or at worst, we see it as really dangerous and arrogant, um, and that it'd just be better if we just didn't concern ourselves with it at all. But despite the confusion, despite the abuses, the Bible actually stresses the importance of us having a big vision of what happens when Jesus comes back and returns. And not to rapture dates, not to tribulation charts, not to hidden codes, none of which the Bible speaks to, but it wants to paint a robust vision of what God is doing and what God will do in the world. And in many ways, the Bible is a book that from beginning to end is drawing us and pointing us towards the end, pointing us towards the day that God's going to set all things right. And this is why even in our most foundational, broad statement of faith as Christians in the Apostles' Creed, even there we find eschatology, we find ideas and beliefs about the end. And so the creed, it says that every follower of Jesus, when we read this out, we affirm the following. I believe Jesus will come again from heaven. I believe Jesus will judge the living and the dead. I believe in the resurrection of the body, which we talked about last week. I believe in the life everlasting. These are belief statements about the end that are actually crucial to our faith. Now, here's the question. Why? Why does it matter at all? Like, for a lot of us, when we look at these beliefs, when we look at these things, we go, well, those kind of feel like not really as important as, say, Jesus dying on the cross for us or Jesus rising again. Does it really matter for our lives that we believe something about this? Well, in this chapter in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is writing to Christians who have just gone off the rails. And in particular, he's writing to Christians who have gone off the rails in their eschatology and their beliefs about the end. And in particular, these Corinthians were denying the resurrection of the dead. And we talked about that last week. You can get online and listen to, listen to that sermon from last week. Uh, but today, Paul's going to shift a little bit, and really he's going he's gonna to focus on one thing. He's going to talk a bit about eschatology and why it matters for our life today. Why is it important? Why is it something that we recite in the Apostles' Creed? So we're going to go through three things on that, and then we'll be done. So first, eschatology, so our view of the end, eschatology, tells us the end of the story. Tells us the end of the story. Have you ever gotten into like a really good TV show that just ended up getting canceled? It's the worst. It is so bad. Because um, it's like you're really into it, and, the, and especially when the writers don't have a chance to wrap it up, and it just ends, and you're like, 
what happens? Like, what's going to go on? Like, I never will find out the end. And you're just left with all the drama and all the tension, but you never get an ending. Like, people lose their minds after this stuff. They, they go and they fill out petitions on change.org. They get on Reddit and make subreddits about it. Um, they're just doing all kinds of stuff demanding for the show to come back. And here's the point. is like, we all hate We all hate a story that doesn't have an ending. We all desire the ending. We desire the resolution, the happy ending for the tension to be resolved. And one of the worst things in the world is a really good story that doesn't have an ending. And that's why uh, why we wouldn't waste time watching a show or reading a book series that never comes to its conclusion. But here's kind of the sad truth about that is, Many of us present the gospel as a story without a true ending. In many ways, we present it as always drama, always tension, never bringing to its conclusion, never resolution. It's always winter, it's never Christmas. But scripture points forward to the end of the story, to the gospel conclusion. And so Paul, in uh, chapter 15, after stressing and reminding us that we are going to be raised from the dead because Jesus was raised from the dead. Paul says this, starting in verse 24. He says, then comes the end. Turns his attention there. Then comes the end. When he, Christ, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. So Paul says Jesus ended up coming to actually establish the kingdom of God throughout all creation to put down every other rule and power that dares raise its head against God's authority. And this is exactly what Jesus taught. Jesus often taught about the end and about his coming again, and in particular taught about the day that he would establish the kingdom of God on earth. And so just one example of this in Mark 1, at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, it says that after John was arrested, that Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, the good news. And this is what he said, saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So Jesus comes and says, the kingdom is here, it's at hand. And so what does he mean by this? I mean, many Christians feel a little confused. Even though Jesus talked about the kingdom constantly, it's hard to know what exactly is the kingdom. In George Ladd, he summed it up best when he said, the kingdom of God is a realm over which our king exercises authority. In other words, the kingdom of God is where God's will is accomplished, where it's done. It's anywhere creation is brought under God's rule and blessing. So Jesus, he comes to bring the kingdom. He comes to establish the kingdom of God on earth to see heaven break into earth. And in a very real sense, the kingdom is here now. Uh, Jesus currently reigns. He currently rules from heaven. But that's not the end of the story. The things we see now are not how it will be forever. Not all things are subjected to God, at least in the sense that creation 
is renewed as God intended. So we look at, out at the world and we still see sin and suffering and death and spiritual evil and decay and tragedy. We are in the middle of the story. We're in the midst of the tension. And the rightful king has ascended to the throne, but there's still rebellion. There's still, uh, there's still things in creation that are not as God intended. There's still darkness where the kingdom of God hasn't reached. But Jesus is bringing all things under his rule. He's defeating every enemy in this world, and he won't quit until the world is made right again. In one day, all things are going to be brought underneath Jesus, and God will be all in all. That's where Paul gets to in his really massively confusing sentence in verses 27 and 28. He says it in like the most confusing way possible. Uh, but here's what he says. He says, God has put all things in subjection under his feet. And when he says all things are put in subjection, it's plain he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him. Who put all things in subjection under him? Okay, Paul. Uh, and now he gives us like the summary statement, which you're like, you should just let it with that. That God may be all in all. <laughs> that God may be all in all. And here's his point. He's saying, Jesus is bringing a kingdom. He's bringing a kingdom to earth. He's establishing it. He's doing away with God's enemies. And when the day comes when his kingdom's fully established, he's going to present that kingdom to his father, and God is going to be all in all. And here's the point. Without eschatology, without thinking about the end, we forget the final chapter, and we cut off the end of the story. We get, in essence, an incomplete picture of what God is doing in salvation. We can end up with this anemic view of the gospel and miss the happy ending that we see in the gospel. But here's the deal. Eschatology is actually essential to the good news that we've received because it's the gospel brought to completion, the gospel brought to its victorious end, and over and over again, the Bible is gonna set our hopes on the future, and on what Jesus will do when he comes again. So in this, in eschatology, we actually get the end of the story, the beautiful end of the gospel being victorious. The second reason why it's really important is eschatology gives us hope in the face of death. So in other words, our vision of the end um, actually sustains us keeps us, drives us, encourages us, gives us hope when we face suffering and when we face death in this life. And that's because on the final day, death is going to die and be laid in his grave. And that's where Paul gets to. Starting in verse 25, he says, for Christ must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And listen, he says, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. The last thing I mean to be destroyed is death. Here's the deal. Death is a problem that we can't escape. But as a culture, as Americans, we've actually mastered the art of denial around death. 
Uh, according to a recent study, uh, most Americans, about 54% of Americans, say they don't spend much or any time at all thinking about their own death. And even when we do think about our death, most of the time we picture it as something far away from us. And what's fascinating is even the elderly, like even the elderly picture their deaths as something far away. And if we were to be honest with ourselves, unless you received like a really bad diagnosis in the last little bit, um, there probably isn't a single person in this room who thinks that they're going to die within a year. Like that's not something we think about ourselves. We think of death as something far off and we avoid talking about it with just about everyone and we especially avoid talking about it with children. And uh, in one psychologist, he actually recounts this story about a five-year-old boy who was haunted about the possibility of death. And it's fascinating because it kind of shows the way that I think we, we tend to try to train ourselves and we even see it in our kids. So he says this, that this boy, he swam up and down in his bath and played with the possibility of never dying. I don't want to be dead ever. I don't want to die. After his mother told five-year-old Richard that he wouldn't die for a long time, the little boy smiled and said, that's all right, I've been worried and now I can get happy. And then he said he would like to dream about going shopping and buying things. And the psychologist comments on this and says, Americans are arguably the best in the world at bearing existential anxieties under a mound of french fries and a trip to Walmart to save a nickel on a lemon and a flamethrower. Which is great. We have, here's the deal, we've grown up, but our attitude towards death has often stayed the same. We give a platitude about it, and we try to put it out of our minds and move on with our lives. But the Bible paints this picture of death that's grim and haunting. The Bible pictures death as an enemy we can't ignore, an enemy who looks us in the face, an enemy that has to be dealt with. In particular, in the Old Testament, uh, in the parts of the scripture written before Jesus came, death is described as this hopeless place of despair. It's described as a place where everyone goes, but no one returns. A place that's like a pit with bars and gates to keep us locked inside of it. Like a place where there's no praise of God, a place that's never satisfied. Death was seen as this tyrant that swallows us up, takes us away, and keeps us with no escape. But it's not the way that it was meant to be. So here's, here's the point. Whatever we do, we actually have to come to grips with the problem of death. And we can't just ignore it, and we can't deny it. It's actually all around us, and it's coming for us. And Paul himself was really acquainted with the reality of death. In fact, he constantly faced dangers and persecutions from those who hated the message he preached. And many times, he found himself found himself on death's doorstep. So in chapter 15, verses 30 and 32, listen, he says this, he says, why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? And he's not referring to actual beasts. He's referring to people who are trying to kill him because of the message that he preached. He says, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. So the question is, how could Paul face constant threats of death and persecution and move forward. He couldn't ignore it. He couldn't deny it or give some platitude towards it. It was coming for him. Why did he keep preaching? What hope did he have? Well, his hope was in the fact that death is an enemy that one day would be destroyed. Death is an enemy that one day would die. If Paul didn't have that hope, he would have given up a long time ago. In fact, he says that would have been the most logical thing to do. If we don't have any hope, let's just enjoy ourselves. Let's just party. Let's eat and drink because we're just going to die. But what gave him strength to face suffering and death head on and look it in the eyes was his hope in the future victory of Jesus. Jesus, when he rose from the dead, he didn't just escape from death. He forever broke death. The bars that the Old Testament kind of describes, Jesus bent those bars open. He broke down the gates. He cast down the tyrant. He conquered death. So in Revelation 1, Jesus, after he's in heaven, appears to his friend John. John kind of falls down dead before him. And Jesus says this to him. He says, fear not. I'm the first and the last and the living one. I died And behold, I'm alive forever, and I have the keys of death in Hades. So death had power to hold us. It kept us locked away, but Jesus rose from the dead and conquered death, and now he has the keys to death. He opens it and he closes it as he wills. Death no longer has powers, power over followers of Jesus. Jesus has authority over death. He dies, he approaches the throne of the tyrant and casts him down and sets himself up as the rightful king. So Athanasius, a long time ago, he says this. He says, death has become like a tyrant who's been completely conquered by the legitimate monarch. Bound hand and foot, the passers-by sneer at him, sneer at death, hitting him and abusing him, no longer afraid of his cruelty and rage, because of the ruler who has conquered him. So death has been conquered and branded by the Savior on the cross. So this idea of what Jesus is doing to death and the ultimate destruction of death, that transformed Paul when he was confronted with death, when he faced death eye to eye. And in fact, I guarantee this is what sustained him on the day that he himself died and was executed for his faith. His hope that death doesn't get the last word, his unshakable belief that in the end, death will die. The tyranny of death is over because of the resurrection of Jesus. So here's the deal. We look forward to that day that death is completely destroyed. And that's what gives us hope in the face of death and suffering that we find ourselves in all around us. 
That gives us hope when our bodies break down, when we get really bad diagnosis, when we groan from the brokenness of this world, when a loved one dies, when we ourselves are heading to death's door. This is what gives us hope, looking forward to the future of what Jesus is going to do. And without a clear picture of the end, we actually rob ourselves of that hope. We rob ourselves of that hope. So eschatology, it actually gives us hope in the face of death. And the last thing, uh, last thing we'll say before all of you also die from boredom or fall asleep uh, is, uh, is number three, eschatology shapes the way we live today. So here's the deal. Paul, I'm absolutely convinced, Paul uh, teaches that this doctrine, eschatology, is actually one of the most practical things the Christian faith teaches. And it's clear throughout Paul's letters that he embraced the idea that what we believe about the end actually changes the way that we live today. And in fact, one of his main critiques of the Corinthian church is their failure to see how their eschatology, their view of the end, affected their everyday lives. And one of the places that Paul is going to point out hypocrisy and inconsistency in that is this really weird verse and passage that I'm not going to spend a ton of time on, but I have to address. And that's the baptism of the dead passage. So in verse 29... Paul says, otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Now, this is really weird. This is really strange. Uh, It seems as if there was a faction in the Corinthian church who were getting baptized for their loved ones who had died, and probably those who had come to faith in Jesus but hadn't been baptized yet before they died. And this is really weird and strange for a few reasons. Uh, one, this is the only place in all of Scripture where there's any hint of baptism for the dead at all, anywhere. This is it. And it's just like a passing remark. The second reason this is really strange is throughout history, baptism of the dead was never adopted as a common practice in any church. So it's not like like looking through history, this is something that some churches did, like Nowhere in history do we see any church ever adopting this practice um, outside of this little line here. And even in Corinth, some of the language, the Greek language in particular, points to the fact that they all weren't doing this, but only some of them inside the church were engaging in this practice. But then what makes it really weird is Paul doesn't correct them, and he doesn't encourage them to continue doing it. He just states that some of them do it. He's just saying, hey, some of you do this, and that doesn't make any sense if you deny that. So what's kind of going on here? Like, I think the best way I can sum it up is Paul isn't encouraging us to engage in this practice as much as he's just saying this was something they were engaging, and that was inconsistent with their eschatology, and he doesn't correct it probably because he has bigger fish to fry, like the hundred other things he corrects in this letter, and he just kind of wants to point it out. But here's the deal. Regardless of how we take this, Paul uses this strange practice to point out their hypocrisy. They were denying our future hope, but they were engaging in a practice that would make no sense outside of our future hope. And his point's the same. There's a connection between how we live and what we do now and what we believe at the end. And he was trying to point out their hypocrisy with it. 
But here's the deal. He wants us to see that when we cut off our eschatology, when we cut off and eliminate the end from our vision, it actually leads to moral decline and apathy. So go with me to verse 33. Paul says, Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. So Paul quotes this, uh, this line that's actually from a famous play, Bad Company Ruins Good Morals. And we don't know what this play historically was about. Apparently it was well known enough that they knew what it was about in the context of it. We don't. But it seems pretty clear what this quote's saying. Um, it's saying, hey, you're going to begin to resemble those you surround yourself with. If you keep company with people who are morally questionable, you're inevitably, inevitably begin to act similarly. Anyone who's ever been a teenager knows this is true, uh, knows what this is saying, right? It's like you surround yourself with those people, you start acting a fool like those people. And here's what's fascinating. Paul isn't actually warning the Corinthians against immoral people. Instead, what he's doing is actually warning them against people with bad theology around the end, bad eschatology. And his point is this. He sees these people in the church who are denying the future victory of Jesus over death, and he says, hey, listen, if you fill your heads with that garbage, it's actually going to lead you down a path of sin. It's going to lead you to apathy like someone who's like passed out drunk, who doesn't care about the world. Because what you believe about the end is going to impact your way of life today. So in other words, if your vision of the end is really bland and hopeless, or for, in particular for them, if you don't have a vision of what God's going to do to raise your body, then it doesn't matter what you do with your body. Like that's the thing, they start engaging in all these practices because their idea is like, well, the body doesn't matter. Uh, here, here's another way of putting it. If your vision of the world is like the Titanic, that it's going to sink and drown, uh, you're not going to care about what your room on the Titanic is decorated as or what it looks like or whether it's well kept. Like, you're going to try to find a lifeboat and get the heck off of there, right? Like, like, that's what you would do. And if your vision of the world is that way, then you're not going to care about this world. You're not going to care about what things look like. You just want to get to the lifeboat. Whatever you need to do to get to the lifeboat and get out of here. But if your vision of the world and vision of the end is different, let's say it's more like the tornadoes that sometimes go through our cities, where there's devastation, but you want to see it actually be set right. You want to see the city be rebuilt. You, you're going to engage that differently. You're going to get your hands dirty. You're going to dive in. You're going to put work and effort into it. You're going to care about how the city is. And if we can't see the world in that way, as something that's broken but God's going to fix, it changes the way that we engage the world. Not pulling away from the world and saying, I can't wait to get out of here, but saying, hey, actually, like God wants me to actually see the kingdom on earth. 
God wants me to be this light of the gospel here. God wants me to actually fight and work for what's good and right and beautiful right here in my home. And so the way we see the end actually changes that. And in some ways, here's what I'd say. 1 Corinthians, if you've been paying attention, um, eschatology is actually this unifying theme throughout this whole letter. It's amazing. And Paul talks about so many things, and in almost every single topic, he always brings it back to our vision of the end. So in the very beginning and end of this letter, Paul appeals for us to look forward to the coming of Jesus. Paul spends time talking about divisions of the church, and you know how he answers that? He ends up saying at the end, hey guys, we're going to inherit everything in Christ, so stop bickering and boasting. Church discipline's happening, and he says, hey listen, we don't do it to punish people, we do it in hopes that on the day, that man's soul will be saved. Christians are suing one another. And Paul, instead of just saying, stop suing one another, he goes, hey, listen, you're going to judge the world when Jesus returns. Don't you think we can deal with these trivial matters now? Christians are engaging in sexual immorality, visiting prostitutes. And again, instead of just saying, don't do that, Paul goes, God's going to raise your body from the dead. So what you do with your body today matters. Marriage and singleness. Paul says, hey, listen, the present form of this world is passing away and we live our lives in light of that truth. Struggling in life and in ministry. Paul's like, hey, we run the race looking for the imperishable crown, the imperishable reward. People are getting drunk with the Lord's Supper. And Paul says, hey, this meal proclaims the Lord's death until he comes. He keeps pointing us to the end. Spiritual gifts, they're going bonkers with it. And Paul takes time to say, hey, when the perfect comes, the parcel's gonna pass away. Like, let's remember this in light of that day. And here's the point. Our view of the future is going to affect our view of the here and now. Where we believe we're headed changes the direction we try to take our lives. And if we see the end rightly, if we look forward to the victory of Jesus over every rule and authority, it will transform the way that we live. So let me wrap this up. Where do we go from here? Just real quickly. Followers of Jesus, Paul leaves us with this charge. He tells us to wake up. He tells us to wake up. And again, some of that is like hinting back to like, hey, there's actually this apathy that comes along when we don't have this hope set before us. But he calls us to put away our sin and to aim for the hope that we have in Jesus. Now, let me be clear on this. I'm not saying that we all need to be more like Harold Camping's followers. That's not what I'm saying. Uh, rather, what I'm saying is we shouldn't throw out a beautiful jewel of our faith because of the misguided abuse of others. Their view of the end actually led them to pull away from the world, to sell their homes, to quit their jobs. But the Bible encourages us to look forward to the coming kingdom of God on earth. And it leads us to actually put down roots, not pull away. 
to work for good in the world, to see our jobs as a holy calling, and to live as ambassadors of the kingdom. So as followers of Jesus, let's once again look at this jewel and have hope and aim for it and build our lives around what Jesus is going to accomplish when he defeats every enemy that stands against him. If you're not a follower of Jesus, then hey, today I just want you to hear, we believe, I know this is a weird sermon, but we believe the gospel is actually the most beautiful story ever told. And it's a story about what Jesus has done for us, what he's currently doing in us, and what he's going to do in the world. Our world is broken because of sin, and Jesus is going to come and set everything right. And until that day, he calls us to hear his voice, to follow him, to follow his way, to trust in him, to lay aside everything else. And when we do, we actually become a part of the story that God's telling. We actually enter into his one big great story that he's telling, and we gain this eternal hope which even death itself can't shake. So would you stand with me? We're now come to this meal of communion. And on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and before his followers, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And he took a cup filled with wine, and he said, this cup is my blood, which is poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. And one of the reasons we come and take this meal every week is this meal actually points forward to our future hope. It points forward to the day not only that death will be defeated because of Jesus' death and resurrection, but the day that we will sit with Jesus in a new heavens and new earth and feast with him. When every enemy has been put under his rule, under his reign, under his authority, when death is defeated. So as we eat this meal, we actually remember that day. We look forward to that day and renew our hope in it. So if you are a follower of Jesus and you've expressed that faith in baptism, here in a moment, I'm going to ask you to come grab the bread and grab the wine. Let's get in smaller groups and take this meal, remembering the victory of Jesus in us now, but also the victory Jesus is bringing in the future. If you're not a follower of Jesus, then there's going to be some prayers on the screen to help you just pray through and think through who Jesus is. Uh, And I would just encourage you, don't take this meal because Jesus is actually calling you to himself, not to some symbol of who he is, but actually to himself to enter into the story that God's telling. And after service, we'd love to chat with you about what faith in Jesus looks like. But for followers of Jesus, whenever you're ready, come grab the bread, grab the wine, let's get in groups, and let's take communion together, remembering the victory of Jesus.